You are now listening to Carly's Couch. I'm Carly. And I'm Lex. In this podcast, we discuss a wide array of topics about life and how to live your best life. Whatever that looks like for you. (laughs) Hope y'all enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Hola, everybody. Um, Happy new president. It is time. Um... I, well, I guess we'll see what all really happens happens but uh your boy did get inaugurated shout out Kamala that's pretty cool like I think to have first black and Asian woman vice president um interesting to see all the responses from people it's weird because it seems like the bar is on the floor because everybody's so excited just to hear complete sentences and um everybody's excited you know that it's just like all right at least you're coherent but also, you know, those first hundred days of what um, the president does will be important and will really show like the efforts and the initiatives and the values that he wants to put first um, as we move forward. And so it's interesting to, I don't know, I feel like I'm in an interesting place. How do you feel? And I'll say how I feel about it, I guess. Um, I'm in an interesting place. I know it's not going to magically fix anything. And so, and I still understand people want to have joy of, you know, quote-unquote surviving Trump and all of those things that happened um but yeah I'm kind of in a weird spot I think one thing that's really cool is um I saw I've been seeing a lot of stuff on social media from Kamala's niece I guess and like her nephew-in-law wore the Dior ones to the inauguration and so it's it's kind of cool for me because it's the first time where it feels like it's closer that they're more real people I don't know if that makes any sense, but, like, seeing her nieces, like, frolic around these old-ass rooms. I like more relatable people, Yeah, maybe. more relatable people or more representative of what the country looks like. I'm hopeful that some things start to change and get better. I also understand there's a lot of checks and balances and nuances that typically keep those things from happening. Um, but, you know, go ahead and drop that 2000 STEMI and forgive mm-hmm. some student loans but I'm, I'm I'm hopeful I hope it gets better but I also don't have a lot of trust in the government in this moment so I don't know yeah I'm kind of still thinking about dipping off for a little bit of time um <laughs> just don't put it put it on I Twitter get, I know right like gosh niggas just can't live their life and just chill like we gotta make an ebook we gotta make bread like yo you was doing good in Bali chilling eating breakfast off a tray in, in a pool right now they done came and yoked you up and shit like bro but i did take some notes but they yoked you up um yeah but i'm thinking about doing that like just going somewhere else maybe for like a month or two maybe i don't know when i gotta get a check first but how i feel right now is nothing i um i did actually watch the inauguration or a little a little bit of the inauguration and I did feel like a little bit of like happiness and joy watching. I was like, oh, yay. Like, you know, I'm glad that it went smooth and, you know, wasn't nothing crazy. We just had all that insurrection um, a few weeks ago. And it's like, yo, like <laughs> these people have no accountability. It's so crazy and so interesting to me how off people can be, but so steadfast in what they think is right, which is just what they want. And it, it's just so delusional. It's incredible and these are people who are not just like poor white people these are people who have prominent uh family members or who are 
police officers or lawyers and all those kind of things. And, you know, people are really working hard to maintain a status quo of white supremacy. And so it's very interesting that, you know, just because a few of the pawns change doesn't really change everything or a lot, to be honest. But we all know that. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, let's just see how it goes. Uh, I'm not really extra either way. So uh, I'm excited to just at least, you know, see what happens and how things move forward. But there's definitely so much space for improvement in this country, um, as there always has been. And I feel like as I get older, you just see more and more and more of that. Um, But the question is, like, how do you actually make any difference or like how does anything change especially when at the very core of it with who who has the real power and the money you know why would they want certain things to change it's very difficult um but I saw an article in the New York Times uh it's actually a little old now quite a few weeks ago or it might have been um I don't know if it was the end of last year or the early early 2021 but the name of the article in the new york times was called deal book how to fix america is that right Mm -hmm. yeah um and i thought it was really interesting it was an op-ed so you know it wasn't it's people's opinion but what they did was they let um in this spread they let uh quite a few experts in different spaces excuse me speak to hey if it was just like one thing we should do you know, to fix America or like just to get us going in a better direction. Here's what that thing would be from all these different experts and their um, points of views. And I thought it was really interesting just because reading it, I never read or heard of some of those ideas before, which made me think like, man, there's of course so much more we can do to be informed or to work towards solutions or even just to brainstorm those solutions. Like I really like never really thought about some of these things or how important they are. I'm going to let you talk Carly. (laughs) Um, Or that some of them are so actionable and possible to get done right now. A lot of times we look at the, what seemingly sometimes are insurmountable odds for like systemic racism and white supremacy and all these things that are happening in the country. But it's like some of these things are actionable and can happen right now and are happening right now in very small pods or in different sectors across the country. And so um, a lot of these, you know, thought leaders and experts in in their fields and in, in these different places shared things that I was like, man, I never even heard of that. But like they're already doing it. And like, look at all of their data that they already have. Like, wow, if we did that on a bigger scale, this really could change the world. You know, at the very least change America or start changing, making change in these smaller communities. And so I get excited. Like those are the things that get me hopeful. Like, yes, the switch of power. You know, I, I got a little happy seeing Kamala up there, got really happy. But when I see things like this and movers and shakers in the community, like actually doing the work and seeing the results, like that's really what gets me excited and hopeful. Yeah. And it also goes to show that we should or need to be doing more research into who are the people actually working towards particular solutions. I feel like I see, you know, talking about the issues all day, which is fine because those issues need to be brought to light and need to be discussed. But I think a lot of times we do overlook the people who are really doing the work and or um, have organizations or have, you know, work academic work that they're researching and all of those things. And so, you know, if we really wanted to start having better discussions around things, I think it's worth taking a look at more of who's doing what and really connecting a little bit more to that work, to those people um, and then seeing how you can 
better help or add to the folks already doing the work versus trying to make your own movement or trying to start your own thing, which I see a lot of people will do, um, trying to be your own expert in the space. And it's like, or we could just actually get more people around and supporting people who have more data, have more knowledge, have been looking at this more closely, et cetera. So I think that's important. Um, and Carly, we're going to list off what some of those um, op-ed article titles were. And this was like what their one thing is that they would do to fix America. So just so you can get an idea of the types of things they were saying, we're going to go through what they mentioned. And doing the research for this episode and getting prepared, like just really reading through a lot of these. Um, there are a few other publications that have them too. We'll link this particular article in the episode notes. But if you are excited by this and, you know, ready to explore other options and seeing what's already been done. There's a few articles that I found from some huge publications. And I was like, oh man, this is a whole rabbit hole that I probably will mm -hmm. fall down later. But for the purposes of this episode, <laughs> we'll start naming these ones. Um, you want to start? Yep. So the first one was give Americans cash at birth so they can retire as millionaires. Um, the author of that one wrote about how each child born can get a particular birthright that gets interest over time, accrues interest. And so that at a certain date, um, you have access to a particular amount of money. Mm -hmm. Another one is persuade companies to embrace a 2% solution. And the author wrote this based on households, um, not companies, already give 2% of our income to try to make the world a better place. And so what if companies did that? What if banks did that? And seeing how much that can move the needle for different areas. Another one was listen to the people you disagree with the most. And I disagreed with that one because I don't be caring about what people who are wrong say. But... Um, their point was just to at least you have to be able to have dialogue with and among um, differing opinions. Mm -hmm. And I also disagree with that one. But yeah, that was the worst one. Yeah, I was like, nah, <laughs> I'm, I'm out on that one. Don't count me in. Um, <laughs> this one uh, is. We'll not be looking into it. <laughs> no, thank you. Next. This one I actually am <laughs> really excited about. And I'm wearing my Greenwood shirt today. So shout out to Fire in Little Africa, Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Use remote work to revitalize the cities that need it the most. And they're saying in this digital economy that we live in, people can work from anywhere. But a lot of economies are hurting because there's not a big draw to live there, i.e. Tulsa. But there really is. And so. So um, Tulsa Remote started this program, uh, I want to say two years ago, where they paid people $10,000 to live in Tulsa. They gave you a job. You have like really nice housing, access to a co-working space and communities and growth opportunities with trainings and all kinds of stuff. And they said um, they had 100 people the first year with over 10,000 applications. And they're on their third cohort now. They're actually taking more applications. So if you're excited to learn more about Black, Black Wall Street and moving to Tulsa, check that out. But they've only had like a handful of people leave after two whole cohorts of like 200 or 300 people. Yeah, I think that's really cool, actually, and really interesting. And for people like me, for sure, like, if it was some random city and they were like, here's some bread to go live there for a little while, I would kind of consider it. I wouldn't be mad at it. So I think that's interesting. Um, another one was fund black-owned banks that renew opportunity. Uh, Killer Mike wrote that one. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. Um, and that's basically about um, giving more uh, support and more tech and more resources to black banks uh, who are able to better connect with and better serve particular uh, communities. So I'm familiar with like an in industrial bank in DC and like I worked with them for a few years back in the day. And, you know, a lot of, they had all the black people, but 
people knew they could come to them and have maybe a better chance of getting a loan and or with more dollars circulating in those black owned banks, um, it gave a little more access to capital for some people. So that's an interesting take as well. Yeah, and a statistic, I think that was in that one, or maybe one of the other ones was like, there's, if there's, I think there's like 4,400 banks or something in the U.S., but only 18 of them were black owned. Mm -hmm. And so just imagine like what that could look like to increase their, like how much money they have and also black ownership in banks. Yeah, Um, a couple just merged to make like one of the biggest ones. I don't remember which ones it was now, but that was a really big deal. Something I saw on the news uh, recently also. Mm -hmm. Um, put an internet enabled device in the hands of every U.S. child. And I think this is about exactly what it sounds, creating access to the internet and to learning platforms for communities, specifically uh, the bottom quartile of income. Because as we've seen as schools been pushed out of school onto Zoom, um, the black and brown communities have been hit the hardest and the lower income. And so just seeing, creating access and um, access to resources because that gap, uh, the white achievement gap, is already so high and it I think in the first couple months of the pandemic it increased like over 25 percent and so just creating opportunities for equal access the next one was require a background check on every gun purchase in America which I thought was a thing I know it ain't in Florida and in some other places yeah I know it ain't in Texas either um but I guess that could be important I prefer to just not see as many guns period um but that was one of the suggestions on how to fix America immediately Mm-hmm. Another one was to stop pushing college, which I am a huge proponent of this. Not everybody has to go to college. Um, there's trade schools. There's schools for specialized art and all kinds of things that are not traditional. I think we see the impact of pushing traditional college on people and also looking at the cost of education and the crippling weight of student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And so just not pushing everybody into that one size fits all lifestyle. Next is cut carbon emissions everywhere, starting with these four sectors. Um, It doesn't really make sense how much carbon and pollution that we do emit with um, a lot of our industries. And so I think they um, also compared to some other countries and some different places and saw like it's very realistic to do this. So that was one of the um, ways to fix America as well. And it's much more possible than it sounds like it sounds like this big, overarching, unattainable thing, but it's actually very plausible. Another one was make good at last on our promises. And this is speaking specifically for indigenous people and Native Americans in the U.S. and having the U.S. government actually uphold all of the promises that they have made to indigenous communities. Because so often they are the hardest hit with diseases, the most debt ridden, the least access to resources and education and just creating equal opportunities for them as well and showing how that can boost the economy. Another way to fix America is to improve access to technology and hire more tutors. So interesting that we have quite a few of the authors who their approach to fixing America has to do with access to tech and Wi-Fi, Internet, all of those things and dealing with a the younger population and their ability to um, keep up and stay current, etc. Um, so that's definitely an important thing. It has to do with the education as well. So that's a big theme. Another way we can fix America is to abolish ICE for a start. Um, That's pretty self-explanatory, but they also addressed the policies on immigration, which I see um, the Muslim ban already got repealed or changed um, in the first couple of days of presidency. So shout out to that. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but just looking at all of these practices with immigrants and how they're being treated. um, They just be running through places just to like cattle people up. And it's like, for what? (laughs) Like, that's not your problem, but. Alas, 
Uh, next is slash regulation and prioritize growth. This one was more about economics. And so I'm not going to say too much about it. Um, but they had some interesting ideas about uh, the U.S. economy and how that can make for uh, less of a gap between different communities. Man, if they just cancel student loan debt, that would help, too. <laughs> uh, and then the last one. Yeah, nobody said that, though. So. <laughs> Uh, the last one is ban share buttons on social media. And I thought this one was super interesting. You might have more to say about this one, but I thought it was super cool the way they um, talked about that and how just this share mentality and the virality of, I don't even know if that's how you say that virality um, of people being able to go viral with their posts and sharing misinformation happened. Yeah. What's interesting about the share button specifically is that before when we would just say things, people liked and commented, it was cool. But it's different when you can quickly just retweet, quickly repost, quickly do things when nobody's even really reading the article, uh, fully even getting past the clickbait headline um, and to what you're saying, sharing misinformation and or just just too quick. It's too easy, I think, is the issue um, that this author brought to our attention. It's too easy to just share something um, without any effort. And so that's an interesting thing to think if there's one thing you could do that it would be that banning the share button. That's, but that's powerful. And that's really a huge part, um, which we already start to see in some of our textbooks and news about, you know, changing the whole trajectory of um, elections and these important things that are happening is because of social media or has to do with social media. So I think that's very interesting. And I know that y'all hated or I saw a lot of flack on Twitter whenever they changed the retweet button. It's like quote retweet and everybody mm -hmm. was confused. But they said you they, better read that whole first. The, exactly. <laughs> and so they were saying they, they saw like um, I was like 25 percent like downturn and people retweeting stuff. And it was perfect during election season because there wasn't as much of a spread of misinformation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so that are that are that <laughs> is some of the solutions that are presented in that article. And so I definitely recommend you go and uh, Google New York Times how to fix America and you should see that synopsis or if you had that edition. Um, I think there's a longer version that's a little more detailed as well. Um, that gave some interesting ideas. And then we want to just break down a couple of them as well that spoke to us um, also. So one that I want to read and talk about is from Chris Magnus. He was the chief of police for Tucson, Arizona. And he said, the way to fix America is let mental health experts answer 911 calls. And to me, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I never would have, I mean, it clearly makes sense. Like all these things, when you read them, they kind of make sense. And again, there's always like holes and stuff and like, but what about this? What about that? So we're not even saying like, oh yeah, we agree with all these things like straight up. But I think it's a very interesting take and it's like, why is this not happening? Um, but I'll read this. So Chris says, we need to be more successful in addressing mental health related calls that come into 911 centers. But how? We should be placing one or more mental health professionals in these centers to triage calls of this kind before they are dispatched exclusively to police officers on patrol. New York City recently announced a pilot program along these lines. In Tucson, where I'm the police chief, we have been doing this since the spring of 2020. Calls to 911 from people in crisis typically fall into several categories that justify different types of responses. The first type involves callers with questions who need referrals or who require crisis counseling. In many circumstances, mental health professionals within a 911 center could handle these questions and provide the appropriate referrals. When callers need counseling, triage personnel can make a warm handoff to a crisis line for counseling over the phone. 
Another category of calls involves circumstances where mental health professionals must respond, but there's no need for the police to even go to the scene. Local mobile crisis teams of mental health professionals could often handle these calls without police support, as long as there's no indication of weapons or violence. Such teams should be established if they don't exist. Suppose the 911 center call takers or mental health triage personnel determine that weapons are involved or that the scene involves potential violence. In that case, they should send both police and the mental health professionals. The police should always make the scene safe before the mental health personnel engage with those who need them. When it is appropriate that only the police engage with the persons at the scene, they can decide to call off the mobile crisis team personnel. Appropriately triaged calls involving mental health crises coming into an emergency dispatch center can assure the right work and the right hands and help 911 center call takers, police officers, and mental health personnel work together to provide persons in crisis with the best possible care. Now, I don't really fuck with police, but I agree that there a lot of the issues that people call the police for and or a lot of the people that police end up having to deal with they don't deal with well or are not very informed on how to actually de-escalate or how to actually understand what's a threat, what's not, and all those types of things. And I think that there is something to uh, thinking about how there can be a team of people who are actually professionals in different spaces, i.e. mental health, and if they were a part of this even in just for accountability, but if they're a part of this and offering solutions and, you know, it makes me think about like the negotiator or like if there was a hostage situation or a holdup, you know how they always bring in that one person who like really knows how to outsmart them or to talk to them or, you know, give them what they actually want or understand what they actually want and what's going on. Mm-hmm. It would be helpful to have that kind of support um, and to maybe there will be better decisions made and less lives lost and less, you know, fire or shots fired and all kinds of things. So I thought that was just an interesting idea and take um, that you would think like, yeah, of course, like 911 uh, call centers could have people there who are more qualified for certain issues. And if you just look at the news and I mean, and disproportionately black people and Native Americans and other brown people are being like killed and mental health checks like all the time for autism or, you know, mania or whatever's happening. I think about it because my mom, um, she adopted a child and he's autistic and she had to call the police the other day um, because he had an outbreak, but it was like, she doesn't have anybody else to call. She didn't yeah. want to call like, I don't police. really want y'all to yeah, come. Yeah, it's like, I but... don't want y'all to come, <laughs> but like, I, I don't know how else to deescalate and I'm on the defund, defund the police, but people are like, well, how would you fix that? Well, you start integrating programs like this to give people another option so they don't call somebody that it ends lethally a lot of times. Um, and so I think this one is, an, is a great one. I think that I would like to look at the data to see how it's going in Tucson and to see the program in New York and seeing how like they're integrating that. But I also have friends who are 911 callers and they're like a lot of times like we just have to tell the police because there's nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So giving them another option. Um, And then the one that I would like to read, you can change or you can fix America by thinking of education as more than just school by Kwame Owusu-Kese. I hope I said his name correctly. um, And Jeffrey Canada, the chief executive and president of Harlem Children's Zone. Since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, scale, schools have failed to eliminate. Damn. damn. Schools did fail. Damn, they did fail. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to restart. Here we go. 
Since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, schools have failed to eliminate the opportunity gap between black and white children in America. How do we make schools actually work for all children? The nation has been pondering this question for decades with answers that have fallen woefully short for poor students. But we think this is the wrong question. What the country should be asking is, how do we change the neighborhoods around schools to make them places where young people can find success in school and beyond? If we are going to break the cycle of poverty, we must reimagine education in America. We can no longer view education as simply the things that go on inside the building that we call school. Such a narrow-minded focus has proved inadequate to the task of moving large populations out of poverty. We must broaden the focus of education to encompass the communities around the school building. Researchers such as the Harvard economist Raj Chetty have made clear that the neighborhood where a child grows up is perhaps the chief determinant of that child's social and economic mobility. Of course, the quality of the school the child attends is important, but so is the level of residential segregation, the neighborhood's social capital, the stability of that child's family, and the neighborhood's level of poverty. The Harlem Children's Zone has achieved success with this approach. We have eliminated the black-white achievement gap in our schools and have graduated over 1,000 students from college over the last decade. But we are not alone. Other organizations throughout the nation, such as Strive Together, Northside Achievement Zone, and communities in schools have used the same holistic approach to open pathways for upward mobility for poor children. An emerging field of practice centered on place, i.e. where a child grows up, has championed the providing of comprehensive services to neighborhoods to effectively combat poverty. These services include high-quality education and cradle-to-career youth programming, physical and mental health support, workforce development, affordable housing, and community leadership development. This is the level of support that our nation must direct to poor communities across America. The focus of the William Julius Wilson Institute at the Harlem Children's Zone is to scale the effectiveness of high-impact organizations around the country through capacity building and technical assistance. But the resources to fund such ambitious programming have been painfully deficient. America cannot afford to continue to waste all of the talent in these communities. When these communities suffer, the economy suffers. When the economy suffers, we all suffer. We must reach a point where the word education means much more than school. It means truly transforming a child's life from cradle to career. And this one, um, if y'all are new to the podcast, is really important to me because I work in education through my own company and then also through local nonprofits. And there's some staggering statistics that 80% of students' time is actually outside of the classroom. And so this article is right on. They only spend 20% of the time in the actual classroom. And now that they're on Zoom, it's probably about 10. And then 82% of educators are white. And so if you're just looking at these, it's like, wow, we're spending all of these resources or barely any resources while they're there. But what happens whenever they leave and go back to these communities? And so I think the Harlem Children's Zone and Kwame are looking at this holistically, which is really the only way to do it, but in a way that doesn't just eliminate that gap, creates access and resources, but also uplifts the economy. Because when you empower one of us, you empower all of us. Yeah, I wonder what it takes to take programs like this like throughout um the whole how to fix america and all the variety of articles i wonder how much it takes as far as like funding and uh resources to make some of these ideas a little bit more popular or widespread in different areas and what it takes i guess for 
politicians to then look at data or be able to assess like, okay, let's put money into it. Like there's so much money that goes into um, war and it's accompanying like sectors. There's so much money that goes into, like we said, like police got like Batman beyond tanks and shit, but it's like <laughs> mm-hmm. Tesla's. Yeah. But like our kids don't have, you know, the appropriate resources to get on their zoom for school. Um, and so you know, I just wonder, like, what does it take as far as your numbers, your stats, or maybe it's actually caring about these communities in the first place to care about the stats, to care about putting money towards those programs and to actually do it because they have the money. I mean, or we don't, but we can we make up the money. Um, and so, yeah, it's just very interesting to me that everything's like, OK, these things sound cool, but why aren't they being done Um, And I think that there's still a huge gap in understanding that the progression of people of color and of black people and and disadvantaged communities in this country are what makes everything better for everybody. And that's a huge thing that's missing and that that a lot of people don't grasp, Um, especially like we talk about it a lot. Not we, but like I've read about it and seen it a lot in regards specifically to diversity like in workplaces and in schools and all these different things talk about how diversity is better for white people because xyz like there's it's listed out and there's data there and you know it's just a lot of other reasons i guess um and a lot of economic reasons where it's like people want to protect what they have their business their money um however their money's moving or whatever their money depends upon and like we said, the systems as they are may work for them, but there are so many, so many smart and bright children, especially when it comes to youth, um, that just could stand to like have just such a better exposure and ability to utilize like the the level of of intelligence that they have. Um, and anytime I've worked with kids, and I know you work with kids all the time, it's like, man, y'all are smart, like. <laughs> They be knowing the answers Yo. to stuff <laughs> and they be having solutions. And, but then it's, I'm sure it's easy to get disillusioned and, or it's easy to not feel supported. Um, or you don't know how to do a thing or how to start a thing or whatever it is. So, and you got people holding you back and all kinds of things. And so not to say it's excuses to not try or that we should, you know, Oh, this is why we we're doing bad and we could do better. But yeah, we could stand to have support in a lot of these different areas. As you said, um, you know, as you read, Carly, there's a lot of, excuse me, education specific ones. So definitely something to look at. I think all of us know our education system is kind of pointless and kind of jacked up. So yeah, that's something that people are like, oh, the system is broken. No, it's not broken. Systems do exactly what they're designed to do. So I think it's more of a a lack of caring and of people trying to protect what they have and their perceived power and whatever that is. Um, And so that's why I am hopeful and I do get so excited. Man, kids are amazing and crazy. They, yeah, they give me a lot of hope working with them, um, but they just need access to resources. There's no reason why they don't have access to the internet or to laptops or to books that are of quality and can help them grow all of these things. And so really for me, that's where it always starts. Um, but <laughs> the reason why that it, why I think it doesn't is people don't care. Yeah, I'm laughing because I used to steal books like shit. Like I was, I was smart as hell, but I was like, man, I can't afford these books. Uh, them college books used to be like hundreds of dollars. Like for what, dog? Like I was all in the bookstore. Like yank. Dang. I can. Yeah. Wish I would have known you back then. Would have yeah. saved me some bread. I was I was on everything. <laughs> um. So 
uh, again, we encourage you to check out the article. Let's try to remember to link it in the notes mm -hmm. so you can check it out for yourself just to get an idea for the interesting ideas. And I would say the question of the week uh, for you guys is look at those different ideas and let us know if any of them stand out as something you're like, oh, that's a really good idea of, you know, a way to fix America or something that's very important or stands out to you. Or if you had your own ideas um, as part of the conversation that we had today um, about what could be it. You know, if there's one thing that you could focus on, what could that thing be? Yep. So let us know. Hit us up at Carly's Couch on Instagram, Twitter. We have a TikTok, too, that I'm starting to put stuff on. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.